Welcome everyone and good evening or good afternoon or good morning, depending on what part of the world you're in. Always good to see you. I uh, just want to start by making a couple of announcements. So uh, I'd say probably tomorrow is the last day to register for the New Year's Eve retreat. If you're interested in doing that, we're sending out the last of the materials for that. And you can find the information on the calendar page of the website. Uh, that starts on Friday evening, runs all day Saturday and Sunday morning, East Coast time, speaking in terms of East Coast time. And um, yes, and then the following weekend, I'll be co-leading a retreat with Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi and Venerables Jin Chuan and Jin Wei for uh, Buddhist Global Relief. We're doing our annual fundraiser for, for BGR to feed hungry people around the world. And uh, our theme this year is, uh, well, so the theme for the New Year's Eve retreat is Ethics, Meditation, and Wisdom. And the theme for the BGR retreat is Hope. And uh, then January 7th, we'll be having a whole series of events here at the Vihara. There's a precepts uh, study group, which is uh, specific folks who are working on uh, their precept vows in the Bodhisattva style. And uh, then there will be Dhamma talk here. Uh, Sunday morning, the 7th, at 9.30, then 10 o'clock. Snacks. <laughs> and then a little break, and we'll head over to the city for a, an art event at the Asian Museum, folks who are local. So that is that. That's a lot of calendaring things. And you keep. I always encourage people to keep an eye on the Dust and I website for changes. And uh, as usual, for Tuesday, tune in. I would like to offer a guided meditation uh, for a little while, 25 minutes or so, 30 minutes, and then uh, a short Dharma talk, and then we'll have time for questions and answers, um, reflections, concerns, whatever you'd like to share. Right. So, and begin by settling into your meditation posture. How's the sound online? Is everybody able to hear okay? Good, thank you. I like to begin with just some gentle rocking side to side, front to back. Moving the head and just releasing tension and allowing the body to come into an upright and balanced posture. And bringing the attention to the weight of the body on your seat. 
Softening the belly and allowing the body to settle right here in this place at this time. continuing to rest in the natural stability of the body. Resting the attention on the sensations of touch in one hand. Just allowing the sensations of touch to arise and be known. Just staying curious about sensations of touch in the hand.
Noticing when the mind wanders away and coming back to rest on the sensations of touch in the hand. Perhaps also noticing any feeling tones. Are they pleasant or unpleasant or just neutral? And now turning the attention to observe sensations of sound, of hearing. No need to go out looking for them, just observing the sensations of sound that come into awareness.
Staying curious about sensations of sound. And allowing all the other sensations to recede into the background. And as before, noticing the feeling tones of the sounds. Unpleasant or neutral or pleasant. 
aware of how the sounds are changing from moment to moment. Now, in these last few moments of the meditation, now shifting the awareness to thoughts as sensations, mind as a sense organ, and thoughts as sensations arising.
Mm-hmm. All right. So that brings us to the Dhamma talk for this evening. And uh, if you have any questions or reflections on the sense basis meditation that we just did, you, we can bring those up at the end of our session this evening. Namo tassa bhagavato arado samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arado samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato Arato Samma Sambhutasa Bhutang Tamang Sanghang Namasami So today is December 26th, and that means that for many people, uh, we've had some period of time, days or weeks or longer, perhaps, of a lot of stimulation. You can't walk into a store without all kinds of music playing and the lights flashing and maybe... Like me, you went to some big event with a lot of people at it or a lot of food. So it's a time when we might be experiencing what feels like a lot of stimulation, a lot of uh, more sensations coming to the sense basis. And it does, for some people, can also be a time of a lot of emotions. A lot of emotions, a lot of maybe feelings of joy, maybe feelings of grief, maybe feelings of frustration or, uh, you know, feelings of isolation, feelings of connection, all sorts of intense emotions that can come up at this period of time in the year, not just because of, you know, Hanukkah and the, and Christmas and the um, various holidays, maybe Buddha's Enlightenment Day on December 8th, but also with the new year coming, sometimes those reflections can bring up some feelings about what happened in the in the past, about what might be coming in the future, about the unknown nature of our lives. So in the midst of all of this, what the Dhamma suggests is that we bring mindfulness to bear, that we bring our uh, open, non-judgmental presence to phenomena that are happening right now, right here. Just attend to that. 
attend to moments of experience. As distinct, perhaps, from trying to push them away. Or if you notice pushing away, then you can be mindful. Oh, there's that desire to push something away. Maybe you notice that during the sense-based meditation. You know, some sound comes up or some thought comes up or some sensation and the feeling in the hand comes up and you might notice there's a pushing away or a grasping at something. Oh, that was a nice memory of some kind of food that I really love. And I'd love to have more of that. So mindfulness is a kind of activity that's, that is um, aware of those um, types of responses that are happening, but also aware more fundamentally, ideally, of the, the basis for those responses coming up, what's happening in the body and the mind. Right. So, so we're asked to, you can ask yourself perhaps to know the content of your experience, what is the material that you're working with, right? and to also start to observe what's the process involved. Yeah. So when I have this feeling in my body, then I notice that this feeling in my body brings up this thought in my mind, or this kind of rejection or this kind of grasping and so on. We can begin to discern those process patterns. And that's important. That's, those are important lessons for us, the tendencies that we are playing out. And uh, because we each have different ones and we are, uh, we are not stuck with them, right? We, the content of our lives and the way that we process what's happening in our lives can change. We have some degree of choice about that. Um, but ultimately, what you observe when you do this process, when you have a look at what's happening, ultimately, what you must be observing is a stream of contacts, is a stream of one after another sensations, right? This is what we were trying to train the mind to look at particular types of sensations, not because it's helpful necessarily to do it in any particular order, but to give yourself the opportunity to just stay focused on one type of observation and be good, become facile at that, right? Become good at that. Oh, right. I can start to see. I can start to experience things that I hear more clearly, for example. Or I can start to notice how thoughts arise in the mind more clearly by having a look at them. So ultimately, what the Dhamma describes when we look at the the earliest Buddhist teachings or some of the earliest Buddhist teachings is that there is what we're what we're observing is we're observing different points of contact one after the other after the other and they tend to they tend to kind of get blurred together so that we have a sense of continuity and there's nothing wrong with that that's really okay um, 
unblurring them and also seeing individual moments of contact is very, very helpful. Um, but what I want to say is the mere observation is helpful. The mere observation is a demonstration of something that actually even goes beyond this particular body and mind. So the question that, that I might ask myself is, what am I learning from this? What is it that I can um, begin to um, begin to unlock by becoming more regular and more experienced at observing this process, this this stream of contacts, or as uh, somebody I think very skillfully asked, and as I often ask myself, what is spiritual about what we're doing? And by spiritual, I mean um, something which is uh, you could say more. Uh, meaningful than the science of it. Okay. So what is what where is a place where we might find some meaning within what we're observing in addition to the mechanical aspect of it, so to speak. So for that I want to first of all bring a quote from Ahe Dogen. So Dogen Dogen Zenji Ehe was the is the name of the monastery that he started in Japan. He um, uh, so most of the time when you hear the name of uh, uh, revered old Zen teachers, it's the name of their monastery, the name of their mountain is their first part. All name is the next part. So he's Ehe Dogen. So his name was Dogen, and um, he's a Japanese man who went to China actually to learn about Chan, Chinese Chan Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, and then came back to Japan and sort of developed his own style. But he said this, which I really appreciate and I think speaks to something that I'm going to hopefully connect to one of the Pali Suttas, one of the Nikayas, about 1,200 years earlier, or probably more actually, let's see. About 1,700 years earlier, yeah. So Dogen says, all day, he says, he's describing this process that I was just mentioning, right? He's describing what this practice is. He says, all day and all night, things come to the mind. You might have been thinking about this over the last few days. Oh my gosh, all day and all night, <laughs> things come to the mind, right? Or maybe you're thinking, ah, oh, great, yes. All day and all night, I'm going to party, I'm going to do whatever it is, see my people, or whatever it is. All day and all night, things come to the mind, and the mind attends to them. The mind attends to them. That is how mind works. We have some choice in the matter. Right? We can move our attention around. That's also one of the things that we're learning by doing these kind of structured meditations rather than a sort of free-flowing meditation. But ultimately, that is the way that the mind works. 
And then he says this beautiful part, at one with them all, diligently carry on the way. So he's echoing the Buddha's last words also, right? The Buddha's last words to us were, carry on with diligence. He says, Vayadama sankara apamadena sampalita. He says, things, constructed things are falling apart. So get on it. Be diligent. Fulfill the way with care. So Dogen, echoing that a bit, although I'm not sure that he was uh, intended that, but he says, at one with them all, all the things that come to the mind night and day. And we are already, by definition, at one with what is coming to the mind. We don't have to make an effort to do that. But our effort is to be clear about it, to be less obscured, less confused, less ignorant, less deluded about it. Our effort is a degree of clarity. So, so this is a lovely description of practice, but understanding practice within a context of the way that things work, the nature of the mind and the body. Mm-hmm. So this mind and body, when you examine it, I would suggest you what you're viewing is the mind and the body as an instrument of experience. That is that is what you are observing. No matter what kind of experience you're observing, that is what you're observing. Mind and the body as an instrument of experience. Until such time as you experience nibbana, in which case all of that has fallen off because there is no nothing in nibbana to be defining you. When we talk about nibbana, nibbana is a state, is not a not a state which is uh, like a quality of mind, but it is the you could say the absence of any signs, anything by which you could relate. But that's another matter altogether. Or I'm talking right now about constructed experience or the the kind of six sense bases experience that we're typically living in the midst of, right? Nothing, no special, no special aha moments, just the moments that are here. So this body doing what it does, being an instrument of experience, is serving up, if you will, a series of a stream of contacts. And then we are having our various responses and reactions to those contacts. And then again, you might say, well, like what? So there's there's the small scale observable. So again, there is the, we have the ability, particularly with concentration style of meditation, the mind can slow down and become very focused and see very, very minute particles, if you will, of experience. Or the complete opposite, right? The vast, completely limitless scale of the mind can also be observed and experienced, right? When we talk about, for example, the Brahma Viharas, the 
the heavenly dwellings. They are described as what? Abundant, exalted, immeasurable, or boundless. Yeah? Or the formless meditations. Again, this is, um, it's accessible. Might not, it may or may not sound like it to you, but it is accessible and it is an observation of the qualities of the mind that are already here. It's not something that we're creating. It's just tuning into particular qualities. Right? So again, so what? What We're having these experiences. We're looking at these experiences. We might see them at a grand scale. We might see them at a small scale. We might see the content. We might see the process. But then what? So again, I want to say, it's not enough to simply be mindful, to simply be present, to simply be the flow of experience, or enough. It won't lead to further insight. Further insight requires investigation. That's why investigation is the second of the awakening factors. The first one is mindfulness. The second one is investigation. So we have to, and the third is effort, energy. So we have to apply ourselves in particular ways in order to find that clarity and that, um, that um, knowing this greater meaning that is being demonstrated right before our very eyes, but perhaps not so clear. So I want to tell you a story from uh, my experience, and then I'm going to try to wrap it up here. <laughs> so many years ago, speaking also of Japanese practice, many years ago I was in Japan and I was um, out on alms collection rounds. So it's called takuhatsu in Japanese. We put on all this kind of medieval Japanese stuff, big bamboo hat and special, you know, socks and so on, handmade sandals, and go out for a walk with these bags or with our eating bowls and um, collect donations from people. And so we were out at this town. And so I, I really enjoyed actually going out on these rounds. It was really nice to kind of get out of the monastery. We would go meet people in the countryside. Our temple, the temple where I trained, was the main temple for, I think it was 28 or 27 sub-temples. So we'd go out to these little towns where the rural temples were and visit with those people once a year, usually in the fall. And, um, and we'd go out for these lovely walks and, and uh, meet them and collect the, the donations. And um, so there I was walking along, and we, I was in this town, and I've written about this. Actually, this is one of the chapters in my book about giving. It's a free, free uh, book, and um, it's all about these kinds of experiences that happen both there and in California. So we're there at this town, and nobody's really answering the door. So we're just kind of walking along, waiting for an opportunity to have an encounter with someone. And that's pretty unusual, even though we were out there in the middle of the day. Oftentimes, we 
you know, it would be unusual not to meet up with someone. But there I was, and I was walking along, and I was kind of hearing the sound of my feet on the floor. I wasn't with my—usually we would spread out, so groups of—we'd go in one or two groups of four, and we would spread out, and each person cover a section of the town. So there I am by myself, and I'm just kind of ringing my bell and hearing the bell. That's part of what we do, carry this little hand bell. And I'm feeling my feet on the floor, and I'm seeing this beautiful dappled sunlight of the fall, and um, and feeling, you know, what's going on, hearing, smelling this, the smells and the tastes of uh, being in that part of Japan at that time of the year. And I looked over to my right, and there was a rice paddy there. Now, mind you, that rice paddies are like. To say they are a dime a dozen, they are everywhere in Japan. Like every little family has literally like their own little rice paddy section if they can in behind their house. And then you have these big, also larger areas of families that are actually rice producers in Japan. So like rice paddies are everywhere. So it's not a big deal. So I glanced over kind of casually at this rice paddy over there and then something happened. And then there was a shift in perception for a moment. And I stopped and I looked and I was just completely captivated by the beauty of the scene of just the color. I can see them still now, the colors of the greens, these golden greens and these bright greens of this new rice. It wasn't ready for harvest yet, but it was getting there. And then there are these deeper greens at the bottom and the flash of the light coming off of the water because rice stands in the water and the, the wind is blowing them and it's just this beautiful dance. And I was completely captivated and I had the after, so then that happened for a little while and then um, That sense of being captivated kind of backed off. I, I then my my view opened up again, and I thought, oh yeah, I need to get going back to what I was doing. So I get started walking, but I reflected back on that, and I thought, oh my gosh, up until that moment, I looked on everything as if I already knew it, but in that moment. There was the sense of this is completely new. Completely new. And it was very, very interesting to me because, you know, all kinds of things had happened up in, in my life. I've, up until that point, I'd had a baby. I mean, I'd had like big moments, right, happen. And yet, it wasn't until this, this moment of direct seeing direct, unconceptual seeing that I realized, oh, yes, yes, you know, I had always thought, I get it. You look at a thing and you think you know what it is. And so there's a degree of, again, this, this um, curiosity or this openness or this freshness, right? In Zen, we call it beginner's mind, but that even that gives it like a flavor, like a thing that you could, a lens that you're putting on. 
But it's not that. It's the absence of lens, really, in a way. So I tell you this story because, not because it's some special experience, because direct experience, that kind of direct seeing, direct non-conceptual seeing, is accessible again in any moment. It's just a matter of... Um, the reason that I told the story the way that I did, I don't know if you noticed this, is that it was about the senses. I was so tuned into the six senses at that moment that I set down the commentator for a minute. Just long enough to see. So I ask you to think about that. What would it be like? How, what would it take to set down the commentator for a moment? or to consider that this um, state of direct knowing uh, isn't, isn't um, about a familiarity. It isn't about a knowing that comes out of your past knowing. It's about a knowing that comes from the present moment knowing. And so, um, related to that, just briefly, related to that, there's a sutta. So, so the uh, if you want to think about the six sense bases, there's a whole chapter on them, the six sense bases in the uh, Samyutta Nikaya. So, in the connected discourses in the Pali, literally hundreds of discourses that were given by the Buddha and by, sorry, Buddha and others about how to practice in this way with the six sense bases. And um, but the one that I want to call your attention to today in terms of, again, relation to what we might be experiencing around the holiday season or how we might think about uh, this direct form of knowing is... Uh, Sanyutta Nikaya 35.17, so the 17th one in the Salayatana Samyutta, the Six Sense Basis chapter. And so it begins with the Buddha basically giving an exhortation to the monastics just right off the bat. He's just um, telling them, uh, giving them a teaching. He says, bhikkhus, so this, you know, we often see this kind of language about on, that it's addressed only to male monks, and it may or may not have been the case, or it could be that he was using the male as a way of referring to all the genders that were present. We don't know. But in general, I usually try to think of it as practitioners. He's addressing practitioners. So those of you who are here, you qualify. Practitioners, if there were no gratification in the eye... And by that, he means perhaps the literal physical eye, but he also means the sense of sight, the sense of vision, seeing. And uh, the next one is the sights. So all three of those aspects, right? The physical organ, the function of that organ, and the objects that relate to that organ. He says, if there were no gratification, then beings wouldn't become enamored. But because there is gratification, then beings become enamored. So right off the bat, he's acknowledging, right? We there are things that we like. There are sights that we like. There are smells that we like. There are things that we 
get excited about. Yeah? In our sense experience. And then he says, if there were no danger or no, you could say, but he, by this he means danger of suffering. <laughs> if there were no chance of suffering or pain that was associated with it, then beings wouldn't experience aversion toward it. But because there is this danger of suffering or this experience of suffering related to things that we see, related to the physical eye, related to the sense of seeing and so on, then beings also experience aversion to it. So again, just acknowledging this push-pull. There are even the things that we like sometimes we feel some aversion to them, like, oh, gosh, I can't have, you know, the sixth pancake, thankfully. <laughs> but then comes this last part. And then he says, if there were no escape from the eye. So now, Bhikkhubodhi, and actually Bhante Sujata also translate this word as escape. But there's another translation, there are many, there are several translations for it, but the one that I want to focus on tonight is release. Because escape sounds to me, again, kind of like aversion, like, okay, we're trying to get rid of something, right? We're trying to run away from something. But this is not that. The, when, when the suttas talk about the escape from the thing, it means the release from the push-pull of that thing. Yeah? So... If there were no release, then beings wouldn't release it. But there is a release, and beings can release it. So it's a lovely encouragement to say, hey, you don't have to be dragged around by your likes and dislikes. You can, you can actually look at the release and how does that work. Yeah? How do you find that place? So with that encouragement from the Buddha, I want to close with somebody other than the Buddha with one more bit of uh, text for you. And that is because I think that um, the one additional ingredient that I often talk about and that I want to emphasize again tonight is uh, the, the, uh, the courage courage that it takes to actually take up this approach to your life and to allow it to inform you in this way that is not just about you, but is about the nature of experience, about the nature of lived experience in general. Yours, other people, the, the environment, just like the Sutta says, the things that, that are the objects of the mind and the body are equally expressing these same principles. That's what we're looking at. That's what we're experiencing. But the quote that I want to bring to you about courage, and then I'll stop and we can, we can go to the last part of the evening here, is from Thomas Merton. So Thomas Merton is a Christian monk. Some of you may know him better than me. I'm not that well-versed in Merton's writings, but he, uh, and this is a, uh, a short quote from a piece that he wrote uh, in terms of concerns about the arising of World War I. And um, 
It's very interesting, thoughtful, and and also uh, it's sort of a quasi reckless for much of his life. Merton was, but he says this, and he's he's talking generally about society. But I think we can also look at this expression that he's talking about in terms of the inner world. Um, he says, "Peace demands the most heroic labor." and the most difficult sacrifice. It demands greater heroism than war. It demands greater fidelity to the truth and a much more perfect purity of conscience. So again, he's talking about society, but I want to talk about peace in terms of inner peace here. So inner peace demands the most heroic labor and perhaps the most difficult sacrifice. In fact, the Buddha at the Uposita, this is interesting, when he gave the Uposita teaching to the monks on uh, Sangha Day, he said, patience is the greatest, is the most difficult practice. Patience for ourselves, patience to stay with what we see and learn from it. It demands a greater fidelity, a greater uh, um, ability to stay with the truth, the truth of our experience. And that is something that nobody can take from you and nobody can give you. It's only by your own mindfulness and your own investigation that you get to see this, that you get to actually receive it and know that it's always been yours. All day and all night, the mind attends and you are at one with it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.